I always think about um, the subsea industry as being like a rugby team. There's a position for everybody, every shape and size uh, it fits into a rugby team. It's the same with the offshore industry, whether it's engineers, whether it's uh, mariners, um, or on the engineering side, and then perhaps moves into supporting the operation from an onshore position. Welcome to Do The Job. This week, prepare to be submerged into the thrilling depths of the maritime world as we welcome a true industry innovator to our podcast. Our guest today is John Giddens, a subsea operations and maritime expert. You'll be amazed at how much of the world's infrastructure relies on underwater construction. Our oil and gas pipelines, telecoms cables, wind farms, to name but a few. John's companies have played a pivotal role in revolutionising the construction, inspection and maintenance of these underwater installations. He's also his own boss. As the founder and former CEO of Hallin Marine Group, he led his company to a public listing on the London Stock Exchange before selling it a decade later for over $150 million. As specialised as John's career sounds, there are many roles and ways to get into the subsea sector. Find out how as John Giddens dives into the detail and tells us how to do the job. John, thank you so much for being here with us today. You're very welcome. Really excited to uh, have a conversation about so. your role because I think it's, uh, it's one that's quite rare. In fact, you are the only subsea specialist I know. How rare is your role exactly? Um, it is quite rare. There's not very many. If you look at the worldwide fleet of ships, a very small number of them that actually specialise in um, in subsea operations. But if you go to the centres of operation like Aberdeen in uh, the UK or Bergen in Norway or uh, Houston in, uh, in the USA or maybe over here Perth in Australia, then it's uh, it's quite common in those centres of, uh, of offshore and subsea operations. Oh, that's interesting. So what exactly does your job entail? I'm at the twilight of a 43-year career. So uh, these days, my job really entails um, my current company puts together the ship side of the operation and the underwater side of the operation. The underwater side really combines diving, so putting men on the seabed uh, to very deep depths um, to do an industrial job of work. And also, increasingly these days, robotics and uh, autonomous systems uh, underwater mm. to do engineering work. Gosh. Oh, there's so much I want to unpick there that you've just said. Like, <laughs> for starters, how deep are we talking here? Uh, men can go to 300 uh, metres underwater, which is 1,000 feet. That's really the limit of uh, the physiological uh, issues. Um but uh, uh, remote systems can operate much deeper. Um, 3,000 metres is quite common. Uh, 6,000 metres uh, uh, has been achieved and engineering work's been done that deep. But down to 3,000 metres, there are oil fields and uh, telecoms cables and various infrastructure that needs to be uh, maintained and installed. So you've mentioned there oil and telecoms. What other industries would need your technical help and your ships and diving expertise? Yeah. 27% of the world's oil infrastructure uh, comes is offshore and underwater. Um, 
28% of the gas infrastructure that we um, have, that we use, 28% of the world's gas that we use, comes from uh, offshore subsea. Um, the 75% of, uh, of wind farms are installed offshore and they need cables and uh, all the uh, infrastructure associated with delivering the electricity uh, is all underwater. And then there are thousands of kilometers of uh, telecoms cables uh, which are installed um, under sea. It's much more common for the conversation that's had over the telephone or the internet uh, to be going under the sea than it is to be going through a satellite in the sky. So um, I'm thinking people listening to this podcast, you have mentioned quite a broad spectrum of sectors that your role could be part of. To get into your job, what would you need to study? What would you need to do? What kind of interests would you need to have to be able to do your role? Yeah, I always think about um, the subsea industry as being like a rugby team. The, um, there's a position for everybody, every shape and size uh, and it fits into a rugby team. It's the same with the offshore industry, whether it's engineers, and I mean sort of degreed engineers who do the planning and the, the clever stuff of the engineering design and um, uh, of the equipment that's got to be installed. Um, whether it's uh, mariners who have to support the, uh, the the ships, so deck officers, for example, who join as a cadet and work their way up to become a mate or a captain of a uh, of a ship, and these are very sophisticated ships that we're talking about. Um, or on the engineering side, whether it's somebody that joins as a as a trainee engineer and works the, uh, their way up to be. Uh, uh, chief engineer of a uh, of a ship and then perhaps moves into supporting the operation from an onshore position that mm. tends to be the progression of the uh, of the industry so let's bring it back to you though john how did you get into your role <laughs> <laughs> um in 1979 i joined the royal navy and i went to uh, to dartmouth britannia royal naval college um, and I was, uh, I joined as a seaman officer, so uh, executive driving ships basically is what I was going to do. And when I joined uh, Dartmouth, my uh, divisional officer um, said, uh, Giddens, I've seen you on the rugby field and I've just seen you in the swimming pool and you're in the first 15 for rugby and it looks like you're going to be in the swimming team. Uh, I'm the, uh, the staff clearance diving officer for uh, trying to spot people for the clearance diving branch. He said, uh, how about joining the clearance diving branch? So I didn't have any other branch in mind. So, uh, yeah, you can't actually join the Navy as a clearance diver. You have to be selected and you go through your normal training, which is three or four years of training, uh, and you do your first complement job and then you get selected and then you go on a, uh, on a, on a long training course, which is a year. Um, but, uh, yeah, long story short, I have... 1979, I went and did my part-time diving uh, course in the Navy. And then 1983, I did my long MCD course and specialised. And since then, I've done nothing but subsea operations. So I'm just rewinding a bit there. You said clearance and MCD. What's that? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, the the main role of professional divers in the Navy is bomb disposal. This is underwater. So clearance is clearance of subsea mines. Um, So... That's the MCD stands for Mine Warfare and Clearance Diving. Right. Gosh, that sounds quite dangerous. Yeah, that's uh, the kind of reaction a lot of people have (laughs) at the beginning. The reality is, um, I mean, 
everything to do with fighting wars is a bit dangerous. But uh, um, yeah, it's not especially dangerous because it's clearance diving. There's ways of uh, blowing up mines quite safely without uh, harming the people that are doing it. What does it look like down there in the depths of the sea? Yes, okay. So the support ship is a big part of this. So the support ship is on the surface over where this is uh, is happening. And the support ship is a big part of the picture. Um, it's dynamically positioned, so it doesn't have any anchors out. It has a very sophisticated positioning system which uh, operates thrusters, that uh, and multiple thrusters in multiple different locations around the ship that keep the ship very accurately to, to like sub one meter accuracy uh, over the the work site so then from that uh, that ship uh, is deployed the the subsea operating equipment which can be a diving system with divers in uh, inside it i'll come back to that in a minute uh, it can be remote operating vehicles which are underwater robots which are tethered to the uh, to the surface and operated normally by people on board the ship um, and then it will be all sorts of other engineering equipment that will be operated by the divers or by the ROVs or a combination of both. So it can be subsea grouting systems, for example, installing cement uh, underneath uh, underwater. It can be uh, bolt tensioning equipment to to tie in uh, pipelines and so on. So all that has to be deployed to the seabed by cranes. So if you're starting to build up a picture of this seabed uh, operating worksite, you've got these big pieces of equipment, all of which are in the process of being put together and assembled. You've got a diving bell that's down there with lots of lights. You're a long way, maybe hundreds of meters underneath the water, so there's no ambient natural light. And the whole worksite is lit by the, the lights from the diving bell and from the ROV, which is swimming around, moving around, and by the divers themselves. The divers are not scuba divers. They're attached by an umbilical cable back to the diving bell. Um, and the equipment that they're wearing is big industrial equipment. So they have a big helmet on, not not a brass one like the old divers had. <laughs> modern one is a typically yellow fiberglass affair with uh, a lot of different valves and gubbins on the um, uh, on their outside of it, basically to provide the diver with his life support for a full shift on the seabed. So he may be doing a, a six or an eight hour shift working on the seabed, doing this industrial work, just the same as a factory worker would be or somebody doing the, the installation on um, uh, on land. If you're tying in a pipeline on land, the process is pretty much the, the same. You're just doing it underwater with some specialist underwater equipment, but the process, the work is the same. Is it scary? Not really. If uh, people that um, that would be scared by that or get claustrophobia or don't get to the stage where they're doing that kind of work. Um, the guy who is a saturation diver who's working and doing that kind of work has been doing it for quite a long time. And the process of getting to that stage and the experience weeds out the people that wouldn't like it. Um, I have to say from my own experience, it was the most comfortable diving you ever do is uh, saturation diving uh, because everything's looked after for you. Your temperature is wonderfully controlled. Your body's heated by a hot water suit with warm seawater just r running over you. Your gas is a perfect temperature. You have communications and you're chit-chatting with the guy you're working with and with uh, the supervisor on the surface. 
he can see sometimes he can see better than you can see yourself because you have a camera on your helmet and sometimes that's a low light camera so the guy on the surface looking through a low light tv can sometimes see better than the diver himself can see looking through his faceplate um, what if you want to go toilet um <laughs> you I don't go toilet I for eight hours i mentioned about the free-flowing seawater <laughs> <laughs> There's so many things about that job, job that would just rule me out, I think. <laughs> uh, what kind of person do you need to be to go into this field where you're going to the depths of the sea and obviously there are dangers just with the diving mm. side? The type of person that comes into the industry really needs to be resilient and have a certain work ethic. The, the work takes place in remote locations, uh, mm. offshore at sea, uh, you spend months at a time uh, on, board a, on board a ship in a remote location, obviously with your shipmates. as quite a lot of them on a diving support vessel, maybe 120 people, something like that. Mm. Um, but you're away from home, um, and it's it's hard, tough graft kind of uh, kind of work. So you need to be suited uh, to that uh, that kind of work. But assuming that that you are, then it's uh, then it's a life that uh, gives a tremendous amount of fun and reward, and uh, knowledge and and so on. It's a it's a rewarding uh, career for the right kind of person who's prepared to have that kind of lifestyle. So, what did you find particularly, or do you find particularly rewarding about it? Uh, that's a difficult question because my career, you know, over over forty years, has kind of transitioned through different uh, different phases. Uh, in the early days, I liked being at sea. I liked travel. I liked going to uh, remote places and seeing places that not a lot of people had uh, had seen. So I enjoyed that. Um, later on, I enjoyed the the rewards that come with a successful career, and and uh, you know, yeah. from a financial point of view, it's a it's a good career as well, particularly if you stick with it and and rise to the senior levels. What qualifications or work experience do you need to have to break into your in- industry? I know you've said there are many roles yeah. that can be in your industry, but what are the basics that you would need? If I start at the coalface for a diver. A diver actually doesn't need any academic qualifications to uh, to join. Huh. If they have those other kind of personal characteristics that I was talking about, you, know, you can go and train to be a diver and uh, you know, have a perfectly good career at the at the coalface, if you like. Um, then there is the ROV technicians that I mentioned. That's the remote operating underwater robots. They tend to be technically qualified in some form, not necessarily an engineering degree, but uh, to have technical qualifications either on the electrical side or on the mechanical and hydraulic hydraulic side. Um, if I then literally move up from the seabed to the uh, to the surface of the ship, um, then there are more degreed engineers because uh, you know, the operations have to be. Um, engineered and planned and designed and and so on uh, and and that's typically done by engineers with a degree and some of those will be uh, will be working offshore um, and then on the support side um, you've got the the two types of mariner that I talked about so the deck officer who starts as a cadet and works his way up to be a mate or a captain um, and those are qualified people at sort of degree level uh, qualification by the time they get to be a, a captain and the same on the engineering side they may join as an engineering cadet and work their way up but a chief engineer will will have a, a marine engineering degree 
um, which he might have got through serving time or he might have gone by going to university in the in the first place. Um, and then, of course, you've got various support uh, people, so you know, people working on deck, crane operators, and so on, who don't have any particularly special academic qualifications, but have a lot of qualification by experience, time served, and and so on. You can't don't get to be a crane operator operating heavy loads around divers uh, a thousand feet underwater uh, without having quite a bit of experience and and qualifications how to do that. Yeah. Do you know what that sounds? more open than I thought it would be. I'm just thinking of people listening to the podcast now who are interested in diving or are crane operators that can be grandfathered into the into the industry. It's actually more opportunity than I thought for people. Yes. Of all different industries out there. Yeah. And as I say, it's like a rugby team. There's a place for everybody of every shape and size. Yeah, great. <laughs> um, so I just want to find out a little bit more about you because you went the Navy route and... Where where have you ended up? What's your business now? What's the what's the end? You you you're at the top of your career. What is that end point? Maybe I could just summarise my career in a in a in a very short soundbite. But as I said, I joined the navy and I spent eleven years in the navy and I ended up uh, doing the mine warfare. Um, but I then moved on to saturation diving in the navy, which tied into the um, uh, uh, subsea engineering outside after I left. I then joined a diving company based in Singapore. They recruited me straight out of the Navy. I spent eight years with them in various different locations around Southeast Asia, the Middle East, Vietnam. Um, And then in 1998, I set up my own company uh, doing subsea engineering, and we'll talk about that later, I'm sure. Um, And I built that up from a startup through to listing on the stock exchange and then I sold that company in 2010 and since then I've done various different things but I am um, I, I develop the uh, the the assets being the ships and the specialist equipment that goes into those ships and, and that's kind of my niche thing that I that I do now um, and we develop those ships we own those ships but we don't operate them which I used to do uh, we charter those ships out for somebody else to operate so we don't take the contract risk in the in my current business you've carved out your own role within the marine and subsea sector as we've discussed by starting your own business so how exactly what were the steps you took to actually start that yeah I decided to to do it after working for eight years for the the diving company that I mentioned earlier on um, I had wanted my previous experience when I was in the Navy was the matching of the uh, vessel assets, the ships, to the subsea equipment. And I felt that there was a, a niche in the market there that it wasn't being done very well. And I thought there was a better way to do it. And um, in 1998, um, I had a house in uh, Salita. I bought a container, fitted it out with a phone and a fax machine, and uh, set up Halimarine. And um, that company, we started to do some contracts, but I wanted, as I mentioned, to to get into the integration of the ships, uh, which, to cut a very long story short, we did over a period of uh, 12 years. Uh, We listed the company in 2005 because it's a very capital-intensive business, building ships and uh, subsea assets and and so on. And um, we did a million dollars of turnover in our first year, and we doubled our turnover every single year 
up till we point where we sold the, the business in 2010 for a very large amount of money yeah as we know because it's in the press so uh. we know it's a hundred million dollars that is very nice profit john actually it was 100 million pounds pounds yes it was at that time it was 168 million dollars um so that must have been a very joyous day one of your questions later on, you talk about uh, what's your biggest career regret. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, well, that that may well be it. I, I um. Yes. Yeah. Do expect now we're here. Let's 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 talk about that. So I I, I think about this uh, often, and um, it definitely was the right decision to sell the business at that time. And we were a listed company then, so we had responsibility to shareholders, and it was a great deal for shareholders. So, from that point of view, it was uh, undoubtedly the right decision. But if you talk to my wife, <laughs> she uh, feels quite personally, uh, you know, involved in the in the company, and to have sold the company that we had, you know, literally spent so much blood, sweat, and tears on over a period of twelve years, um, it was a sad day in a way to to mm. uh, sell the company and part ways with it. I can imagine. I can imagine that, as you say, that you spent so much time and effort, and your whole family had lived with you through those times it yeah. couldn't have been easy all the time and then to close that chapter must have been quite a big deal exactly yeah so john it's time for our quick fire round <laughs> okay so number one your biggest career regret yeah for me Probably selling the company in 2010. It's, uh, it's a mixed bag because uh, obviously it was a good good move for shareholders and so on, and we we made money. But uh, it was a shame to to uh, sell a company that we put so much effort and uh, work into. So would you uh, have not done it if you had your time again? Would you still be? I would. I would do it. <laughs> I, I, as the CEO, I have responsibility to the shareholders, and it was a great deal for shareholders. So. Uh, we would do it again. Question number two, your career standout moment. Also has to be linked to the same thing, but I think when we floated, when we listed Halle Marine on the A market in London, was a big day. Yeah, good day. A good day, I can imagine. Um, now, instead of asking what you earn, because people don't usually talk about money, although you are more than welcome to do so, we are framing it in your ride to work. We should have actually put in a a boat somewhere here but we didn't we said does your job afford you a bike a taxi toyota or ferrari uh i drive to work in a, in a lexus uh hybrid suv <laughs> but when i get to work i have a citation uh, <laughs> cessna parked in the hangar and a cirrus sr22 i think that answers our question so that would be the air equivalent of a ferrari if not more than a ferrari lamborghini possibly Bugatti. <laughs> so that's what you can get if you go to the top of the subsea sector. Yeah. And if someone initially going into the industry, what kind of money? I know I said we wouldn't talk about money, but just sort of a starter level. Would you have any idea how much a starter level engineer might get? You know, like a graduate. A graduate engineer um, will get paid somewhere just under £30,000 a year on a, in a salaried position. Uh, but many people in the, um, uh, in the offshore industry 
don't work on a full-time salaried position. They'll do day rate work, so they'll be contractors. So if they go offshore for, for two months, they'll get paid pretty good money and they'll get paid from door to door. But then in their, in their let's say, six or eight weeks off, um, they won't get paid. They'll have been compensated during their, uh, during their time offshore. Um, and those people um, will be earning during their time at sea, and this will be US dollars, um, maybe between three and five hundred dollars a day as a basic uh, level of whatever they're starting. That goes up significantly if you're just talking about divers in saturation and so on, and the supervisors for for those divers. It goes up very significantly from there. But the starting level, working offshore on a on a day rate contract, maybe three hundred to five hundred US dollars a day. So if it's contract, then bonuses and things wouldn't be part of the payment package? Not normally, although it's not unheard of that there are uh, finishing bonuses on sometimes companies give incentive bonuses to crews. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's like this job's got to be done in three weeks, guys. You know, if you bring it in in two and a half weeks, there'll be a bonus for everybody. That's not unheard of, but it doesn't happen on every job. Mm. And the last quickfire question is, in terms of societal impact, do you think you have changed people's minds, changed the narrative or change the world? Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, going back to when I talked about setting up Halle Marine and the objective of integrating ships and the, and the subsea equipment, um, I think the biggest thing that we've achieved, or Halle Marine achieved, and now TASIC, um, is the building and the integrating of those kind of systems, good quality systems, meeting all of those codes of practice and so on that we, that we talked about earlier on, um, and building them in Asia, uh, at a reasonable price, and uh, yeah, I think that that's the that's the biggest contribution. We actually built in Halle Marine the very first diving support vessel, dynamically positioned diving support vessel, uh, with a built-in uh, saturation diving system. It was the first the ship was called the Ellswater, and it was the first to be built in Asia. So you you feel like you've made the technology more accessible. More accessible, good quality equipment, built in Asia at the right price. That, mm. uh, that wasn't being done before 2005 when we built the Ellswater. Since then, it's been done several times more, including by ourselves. Mm. Uh, and other people have done it too, but we were the first to do that. And I, and I think that was a, a contributor to the industry, actually. The future of the your industry. Um, you did mention right at the beginning of our interview about AI and robotics, and regular listeners to the podcast will know how obsessed I am with AI. <laughs> so how exactly do you see your industry evolving, particularly with the automation? Yeah. Automation is one of the biggest uh, areas of, of change, and um, uh, I could give lots of different examples, but I'll, I'll, I'll use one. Um, the ROVs that I mentioned, the robotics that uh, work on the seabed, traditionally, I mean, those have been around for 40-plus for years, um, uh, increasingly advanced in their capability and so on. Uh, and they would typically be operated by a team of guys working two shifts to cover 24 hours a day um, offshore. And there would be, for each ROV, at least three, possibly four 
people on the team um, who would be operating the RV and also maintaining it. They'd be a combination of operators, maintainers. Um, nowadays, uh, increasingly, um, those operators aren't on the ship. Those operators are sitting in a nice office in Singapore or Bergen or Aberdeen, and uh, in some cases, operating an ROV in Brunei from an office in Bergen in uh, in Norway. There's one company in particular that's doing exactly that. Um, and what are the advantages of that? You still have to have a couple of people offshore to, to physically launch the vehicle and so on. But the people that are uh, working in the office, first of all, they can be working on multiple projects. They might be working, operating the ROV that's working in Brunei, but if that's not working right now, or they might be working with one that's in the Gulf of Mexico or in uh, in the Middle East and, uh, and driving that. So they're in much uh, better conditions, of course. They get in the car and go home when they finish yeah. their, finish yeah. their shift. Um, and from a purely commercial point of view, you don't have to pay those people as much. You don't have to fly them around the world in order mm -hmm. to join a ship. You don't have to pay them for being offshore. And they're probably happier for not uh, not doing it, even though they might not be earning quite as much money. Mm -hmm. So that's just one uh, one example. Um, the the take the increase and improvement of technology is is, uh, is massive actually you almost you almost don't notice how quickly it's uh, changing you know project to project and new equipment and so on comes in the one other area that is becoming important is uh, autonomous underwater vehicles mm -hmm. so the robots that I talked about the ROVs they have a tether to the surface and they're operating um, uh, controlled through the through the tether the purely autonomous vehicles are just sent off on a mission and they're dropped in the water and they navigate themselves very accurately uh, and they go off and they uh, they do a, a job on their own. Typically at the moment it's a survey job so they're recovering information and so on but there are already moves now to go to the next level where they're actually doing manipulative jobs so they can be programmed to go down and uh, you know, open a valve or close a valve or or do up a bolt. That uh, um, so that's the the future that's that's, uh, that's coming. Truly amazing, isn't yeah. it? Truly amazing. And the environmental side, there are a lot of companies that have to be environmentally responsible. How does your industry navigate that? Yes, that's interesting. I, the, the the fact is that we are mainly in the oil and gas industry, yeah. so that's where we're working. But it does affect us. Everybody's very conscious right now of uh, the need to have less emissions and uh, essentially to burn less fuel is the most important thing. Um, and there is a big move to change the propulsion of our ships away from pure diesel propulsion mm. uh, towards alternative fuels and uh, hybrid ships, particularly for dynamic positioning operations that we talked about earlier on. Um, there's a, an awful a uh, lot of uh, movement towards uh, hybrid and uh, alternative fuels. At the same time, though, that's a big dilemma for uh, for our industry because uh, nobody right now can answer what those alternative fuels are going to be for mm. uh, for ships. Nobody knows: is it going to be ammonia? Is it going to be hydrogen? Is it yeah. going to be some alternative uh, interim like LNG, for example? And if you're investing, as we do, in an asset that has a 30-year operating life, 
Well, in 30 years, that takes us beyond 2050 when we're being told by governments that's when we should have zero zero emissions. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you do in 2023 if you have to make an investment decision on a $150 million asset and you don't know what fuel it's going to uh, to use? So um, that's having a big impact on our industry at the moment because nobody's building these ships. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are getting older and getting scrapped. And... For example, the number of of, uh, diving support vessels, the type of ship we were talking about earlier on, uh, in 2017, there were 82 in the world. Uh, Today, there are 57, and nobody's building any new ones because nobody knows what fuel and what engines to to put in them. So everybody's holding back from investment decisions until that becomes clear. Gosh. And where do you think it will go, just personally? I think there will be an interim solution, and I think that interim solution will probably be a, uh, be dual fuels. So it'll still be burning diesel, um, but it will have a, a dual fuel alternative, and that will probably be an interim fuel like uh, LNG. Although not everybody would agree with me on that. Some people would say it'll be methanol, something like that, which is a cleaner solution, but it's not as uh, readily available. Mm. Um, and they they will be especially in our space where we're talking about the the dynamically positioned ships that we talked about, um, that's particularly suitable to the hybrid uh, model. So there will be hybrid ships, very similar to your hybrid car, making the savings in a, in a similar way, um, and combined with uh, dual fuel uh, engines. What advice would you give to someone aspiring to enter the field of subsea engineering? First of all, I would say think about the lifestyle. Is it a lifestyle that uh, that attracts you? Um, you know, it attracted me at that age. So, uh, but I know it doesn't attract everybody, and it's not the life that is for for everybody, especially the the travel, the um, the time away at sea, and and so on. But if that if you find that interesting, then my advice would be to get the best qualification that you can. Um, you know, if if you got the school lever qualifications to go to university and get a good uh, relevant degree uh, do it before entering the the industry but if you left school without any qualifications go and get some good technical training uh, as a diver or a technician electrical um, uh, mechanical technician or something like that and uh, and join the industry because it's a, a great life actually john thank you very much for being here with us today you're very welcome Ali. yeah Thank you.